Encounters in Yoga and Zen Meetings of Cloth and Stone by Trevor Leggett This collection of pieces is reverently dedicated to the late Hari Prasad Shastri, in whom the ancient traditions were always young. We begin with an introduction, written especially for this audiobook. Incredible. Many people searching for some reality above the ordinary experience of the world tend to think of things of the spirit as a sort of package deal. One may practice Buddhist meditation as a means of attaining spiritual insight and independence, but then one is in duty bound, as it were, also to believe in palmistry, Western and Eastern, though the principles are entirely different, astrology, geomancy and so on. Apart from the fact that the Buddha himself forbade such practices, there are many disadvantages in the attitude of it's all true and more. The Chinese saying is that wherever the people gather, there the pickpockets too will come, and this is true of spiritual things. Oddities of thought are built up into fantastic systems, skillfully peddled to credulous people who end up bitterly disappointed. A man in one of the great cities of the East, who had a reputation as a sort of magician, used to begin an interview by asking the client to bear the right forearm and lay it on the table. Then he used to place on it a little tripod made of cardboard, with a sort of horizontal windmill on top, which could freely revolve. He told the client to sit quite still. There was no possible source of power within the little machine, every detail of which was clearly visible. But quite soon, the top would begin to revolve. The magician used to scrutinise the movement for a minute or so and then proceed with the interview. He never explained it, but the clients were duly impressed. One of them... A European woman with a deep interest in Buddhism once described it to a friend who was an engineer. From her account, he constructed a similar toy and showed her that the currents of warm air rising from the body heat of the arm would be sufficient to make the little windmill rotate. She was terribly upset at having been tricked, as she felt, and gave up not only her visits to the magician, but her interest in Buddhism as well. She had thought of it all as a package deal. She had believed everything, and now found she could believe nothing.
There is a folk tale which illustrates the point amusingly but profoundly. It comes from Jammu in northern India. In the troubled times which followed the collapse of the Mughal Empire, rich people buried jewels in the ground, hoping to come back later to retrieve them. Sometimes they were never able to do so, and the secret died with them. In a Jammu village, a husband and wife digging in their garden one afternoon unearthed a large ruby. To declare their find would have meant that the village bully would simply have come and taken it from them. Their only chance was to wait till the husband made his usual monthly trip into the city, where he had a relative who was a jeweller. Then he might hope for a fair price for it. But unfortunately, their little five-year-old son had seen the ruby dug out, and they knew he would be bound to tell everyone. What could they do? They couldn't tie his tongue or keep him indoors for the next month. It's not easy to think of a solution. And in a spiritual tradition, the teacher will sometimes break off this kind of story, telling the pupils to think out something for the parents to do. When they have wrestled with it for quite a time, they are able to appreciate the conclusion of the story and apply it to their own lives. Readers who are interested might try pressing pause here and pondering what they would have done in place of the parents. What the mother did was to keep the little boy in the house that evening. After he had gone to bed, she went next door and borrowed the oven to make some cakes with some very special honey which he had been keeping for a long time for a future treat. Just before dawn, she got up quietly and scattered some of these cakes on the roof and others in the garden. Then she woke her son and said, this is a lucky day. It's been raining cakes on our house. Get up quickly and help me pick them up before the birds get them. By the light of the pale dawn moon, the two of them gathered up the cakes into bags. They had some of them at breakfast. Then she let her son go out. Sure enough, when he was with some of his friends in another part of the village, he blurted out, we dug up a big shiny red stone in the garden yesterday. The bully's wife happened to be there, and she pricked up her ears and listened carefully. Yes, he went on, and that's nothing. It rained cakes on us too in the night. I got up with Mummy this morning and helped her to pick them up. I bet you've never had cakes rain on your house. As the children discussed this, some believing and others doubting, the listener relaxed, laughing. The merely rare event was now associated for her with the impossible, and she dismissed the whole thing. She could not believe in the cakes, quite rightly, 
and because they were associated in her mind with the ruby, she did not believe in that either. Qualifications The king of a small state in the south of India used to meditate every day on himself as a servant of God. He limited the satisfaction of his desires to what he thought appropriate to a servant and practiced a servant's simplicity of life. After some years, this practice produced in him extraordinary energy and clear-sightedness. His kingdom was a success internally, and the neighboring kings soon found it did not pay to venture to extend their territory. The king's spiritual adviser, though not his teacher, was one of his ministers, to whom the king owed, and knew that he owed, a good deal of his success. The minister was an advanced practicant of meditation. One day the king learned by chance that the minister's own form of meditation was on the self as infinite shining space. He told the minister that he would like to go on to this higher form of meditation, but the minister advised him against it. It would not accord with your present role, he told him. The king was a little put out and retorted, If you can say this and meditate on it, I can do so too. Why shouldn't I? The minister said, You can say it, of course, but it will not have any effect unless the one who says it is qualified for it. What has qualification to do with it? cried the king. The words are bound to have their effect. The minister beckoned to the king's bodyguard, who stood on the far side of the room. The man came running up and stood at attention. Slap his face said the minister in a firm voice. The bodyguard's jaw dropped in astonishment. You heard me, didn't you? Slap his face, ordered the minister sharply. The bodyguard closed his mouth firmly and stood motionless, his eyes fixed on the king. The minister turned to the king. You say it. Slap his face said the king in a low voice. Instantly the bodyguard's hand landed in a loud smack on the minister's cheek. The king waved him away. Not so hard, not so hard. After a little silence, the minister said quietly, You see, we spoke the same words, but you were qualified, and I was not. So the words you spoke were effective. But what I said would not have been effective even if I had repeated it a thousand times, because I did not have the qualification to say it. It's the same with spiritual truths.
drunk. A great spiritual teacher used to live in obscurity as a beggar, and his pupils did the same. One disciple, a good speaker, having completed the training and received his teacher's mandate, began speaking in marketplaces. His words had a tremendous effect, and the ecclesiastical authorities made inquiries about him. In the end, they found out what a great teacher he had had, and pressed him to accept a high office. The teacher, in his poor clothes, came to the inauguration ceremony, and, looking at the magnificence in which his disciple was now robed, said, You don't need those things to tell people the holy truth. It's a sort of intoxication. You and them both. Thereafter, the disciple, even when he became what corresponds to an archbishop, dressed as plainly as he could. But for a big ceremony, he had to wear one of the splendid formal robes. On one occasion, he was passing, magnificently dressed, in a procession on the way to a great temple, where there was to be an important ordination rite. A beggar stood watching them go by. The attendants were amazed when suddenly the door of the litter was thrown open and the gorgeous embroideries dragged in the dust as their wearer prostrated himself at the feet of the beggar. The beggar picked him up, looked at him with affection, and muttered, Drunk again. Meditation A man used to complain to his teacher that he couldn't meditate. I can't hold my thought on it for long. I start thinking what we'll be having for breakfast, or some argument we've had in the family, or whether I shall be transferred at work. One day, the teacher suddenly blazed up and shouted, I'm the fool to have taken on a fool like you at all. I'm going to finish with you. Why should I go on? Come back tomorrow. And unless you can give me one good reason why I should still see you, you can take your things and go. The pupil tried to stammer an apology, but the teacher cut him short and physically pushed him out. That night, he could not sleep. He was wondering what he could do to get the teacher to keep him on. Next day, he brought a present for him and timidly gave it to the attendant, who then announced his name. The teacher came out quickly and said, Come in and sit down. How have you been? He answered, I could not sleep for thinking how I could appeal to you. Please keep me on. I can't give any reason, but please keep me as your pupil.
You couldn't sleep for thinking about it. That's good. That's what you needed, the teacher told him. When you have trouble with your mind, think back to that and meditate with the same earnestness. You've learnt what it means to meditate. The Way of the Merchant The Gita, Chapter 2, Verses 47 to 48 says, Be your concern with action alone, never with results. Let not the fruit of action be your motive, nor yet be attached to inaction. Steady in yoga do your actions, casting off attachment. Be the same in success and failure. Evenness of mind is yoga. In some countries of the East, the merchant was not highly regarded. He was thought to be dominated by selfish profit and lacking in the inner strength of the warriors and the calm of the priestly class. A young warrior got to know a merchant in his city. Something about this man's character attracted him. Once he went to sympathize after the merchant had suffered a big loss, but he found him not at all disturbed. And another time, when he knew that a minister had made important purchases from the merchant, the latter did not mention the matter at all. One day, when they were walking together, they saw a fire and helped to rescue the family. The merchant, showing a calm daring which impressed the warrior, he said afterwards, You will excuse my saying this, but it was rather unexpected to see you calmly taking such risks. I had thought that came from the way of the warriors alone. Oh, replied his friend, merchants have a way of their own. I suppose you pray to Ganesh to protect you. All you merchants worship the Lord of Prosperity. I do worship Ganesh, but I never ask for anything. To pray for things is all right for little merchants who are not yet on our way. However much he may own, if he prays for things, he is only a little merchant. If I pray for something, I should always be anxiously wondering whether my prayer would be answered or not. That would disturb my heart, and no one with a disturbed heart can be a great merchant. Please tell me about your way, asked the warrior. The merchant looked serious and said, Words are no use in explaining the way, but I can show you. A little further on there is a shop where the owner is ignorant but cunning. When a great man dies suddenly, he immediately goes to the house and makes an attractive offer for small things in the dead man's effects. Often the relatives think them of no value, and in the confusion he may get a good bargain. 
But as he himself does not know the value of the things either, he waits till a prospective buyer comes in and then takes his cue from how much interest the customer shows. When he sees me coming, he will be on the alert, because he knows I am well informed in such things. He has a little box, which is really valuable, because it is one of a set with a long history, which has got dispersed. He bought it cheap from an old widow who knew nothing about it. I have the others, and this one would complete the set. Of course, I could send an agent to buy it, but a great merchant never does anything like that. He goes himself, without any tricks. When they got to the shop, the merchant looked around a little, and then inquired, How much for this box? The proprietor looked narrowly at him, and named a high price. What? smiled the merchant. For that little box? It might be one of a set, perhaps? I'm not buying a set. I should not pay more than a quarter of what you're asking. Even that would probably be much more than you paid for it. Well, I have no concern with it. Keep it. And he walked away down the street with his friend. As they rounded the corner, talking cheerfully of other things, the shop owner came running up after them. I have always had a respect for you, and I have decided to let you have it at a quarter of my price, as you wanted. But I hope you will remember this gesture of friendship. The merchant paid without comment and took the box. Afterwards, the warrior said, But you told me a great merchant never used tricks. That was a trick, nothing more than a trick. Do you think so? Let us see whether it was or not. Is there anything in any shop which you have had your eye on? Yes, there is an old sword in a shop near here. It must have belonged to one of the noble Rajput families, because the hilt is very small. We pride ourselves on our small hands. Our enemies may take the weapons from our dead bodies, but they cannot use them. I should like that sword, but I doubt whether I could afford it. Well, you can try the trick then. I will leave you. Come in and see me afterwards. When they met again, the warrior was looking down. It didn't work, he said. I did exactly what you did. I told him I wouldn't pay more than a quarter what he asked, and that I had no concern with it. I'm sure he does not know the real value of it. But he didn't come after me. I kept hoping he would, but he didn't. It would have been wonderful to have that sword in my family. It's one of the old ones. Then you are still concerned with it, aren't you? I told you words are no good in the way. Now sit here and give up that sword. Give it up completely. They sat in silence for a time, and then the warrior said quietly, I can't. Tell me how to do it. The merchant replied, For the sake of honour, you would be willing to give up your life in the way of the warrior. But this is the way of the merchant. Every day I sit before the image of Ganesh, and I meditate that all around me, my shop and my goods and my house and my warehouses, everything I have has caught fire and is burning away. Even my body catches fire, 
the whole world catches fire and burns and burns till everything is ashes. Then there is only Ganesh and I. I and Ganesh. Ganesh and I in the whole world. Perhaps there is something still further. But it can't be spoken. One day a friend said to the young warrior, Why do you go around with that merchant? You are a warrior, and he is a merchant. Honest, I admit, but still, just a merchant after all. He certainly acts like one, was the reply. But I don't know that he is just a merchant. It seems to me sometimes that it is not really a merchant there at all. But Ganesh playing at being a merchant. Powers In the great yoga classic of Patanjali, it is stated that a man who practices virtue and does not hate those who do not can acquire various powers, such as a knowledge of remote or concealed things, by making special concentrations on them. Sutra 1, verse 33, and Sutra 3, verses 23 and 25, respectively. But in Sutra 3, verse 37, it goes on to say that such perfections are obstacles to spiritual progress and lead to relapses because the excitement they cause will disturb and darken the mind which exercises them. Many people find it rather irritating to hear these things being mentioned, and then immediately ruled out on grounds which are not necessarily convincing. They usually think they would do rather well if they could exercise real power, such as that of a leader of some great movement. The head of a large Buddhist sect was once asked by a reporter whether it is difficult for a man in a position of power to remain humble and kind. Usually very difficult, was the reply. But you yourself have this position at the head of more than ten thousand temples. Do you find... I have to remind myself occasionally, of course, but the fact is that in a public position like this, every little thing I do is seized on by the press and ruthlessly criticized. So there is not too much danger that I shall begin to think myself in any way remarkable. As for kindness, well, there again, I have to meet the approval of the followers of this sect, and set an example to them. So I am not likely to be allowed to become tyrannical in my present position. Then why do you say it is difficult? 
Ah, that is something else. That is when there is real power. I had it once, when I had completed my second year in the training temple. I was asked to train a new entrant from the country in how to cook. I was a good cook myself. Mother had often been ill, and I had had to learn it. Well, that boy was clumsy, and had no idea how to go about things. I gave him absolute hell. There were just the two of us in the kitchen most of the time. There was no one to know about it, and he was too scared to complain. Gradually he got paler and paler, and finally the head monk realized something must be wrong. He transferred him to the garden, where he soon recovered. Now that was a situation of real power, and I didn't do very well in it. I simply didn't understand what I was doing. I used to tell myself that strict training was necessary. I realized soon afterwards that I had been arrogant and cruel, and it has been a lesson to me all my life. There may be other disadvantages attached to acquiring unusual powers. A merchant, who had done a good deal of unselfish charity in strict secrecy, one day met a yogi, who looked at him and said, You have laid up a store of good karma. You are entitled to receive some instructions, by which you can either make spiritual progress or get one of the occult powers. I am not sure I am ready for spiritual progress, said the merchant. In fact, I don't know what it is. But I could do with the ability to know the thoughts of others. I wouldn't use it to swindle them, but only to protect myself from being cheated. The yogi said, This is easily learned but perhaps you had better have a little experience of it first. When I came to this village, I passed a little hut in disrepair at the northern end. Please go and stay for three days and nights there. The merchant took an umbrella to protect himself against leaks and a stove to cook his meals. He more or less camped in the little hut for three days and nights, when he returned, he looked tired and harassed. What happened? said the yogi. Why, it was a failure. I didn't become able to read thoughts. The fact is that I haven't been able to sleep. In the house just by my hut, there's a pair who are both drunkards and very quarrelsome. They were swearing and shouting and screaming at each other all day and night, I couldn't sleep, and even in the day I couldn't read. It was so disturbing. I don't understand why you sent me there. Yes, I heard all this in passing when I first came here, said the yogi. 
but you did know their thoughts, didn't you? They were shouting them. I wanted you to have that experience. That's what it would be like. Voices yelling in your head all the time. Surely one could learn to switch off the telepathy by mental control, couldn't one? asked the merchant. Then it would do one no harm. That is true. So you could begin now practicing how to withdraw your attention from external disturbances. It will help you to make real spiritual progress. But when you can spend three days and nights in that hut, without being disturbed, switching off your attention by mental control, then, if you like, I will teach you telepathy. It may take you quite a few years. The merchant thought for a bit, and then laughed. Tell me about real spiritual progress, he asked. Not this stuff. The Door One wing of the palace abutted on a rubbish heap. There was the outline of a door faintly to be seen on the wall. It was rumoured that each year the king stood for an hour behind the door, and if anyone asked for admittance, he took him in. It was not said what the king would do then. A merchant was wronged by a minister, but could not prove his case. He abandoned the rest of his property and stood day and night in front of the outline of the door, every hour asking for admission in the hope that sometime the king would be there. At first he nearly died of hardship. Then a passing horseman threw him an old straw coat, and a beggar brought him some scraps. The city people heard of him and came to see the man standing in front of the wall. Some laughed, but others were impressed at the way he had sacrificed everything to get justice. A few stalls went up to serve refreshments to strangers who came to see the site. Admirers built him a hut, and then a larger building. Others came to serve him. He was regarded as the embodiment of justice and people brought their disputes to be settled, instead of going to the courts. His decisions were universally admitted to be fair and wise. One midnight, it seemed, there was a crack of light in the wall, and a faint voice said, Enter. He looked back and saw the sleeping people who would seek his help next day. He quietly finished his salutation and returned to his usual place.
The Calligrapher Teshu was one of the most famous calligraphers in Japan at the end of the 19th century. Unlike other masters, he would write for anyone and never looked at the fee which they might offer. He threw all the envelopes, unopened, into a chest in his hall. When someone came in need, he opened them, one after another, until he had the required amount to meet the asked-for loan or gift. A butcher once boldly asked him whether he would write a signboard for his shop. The master's disciples were horrified. A tradesman asking for a masterpiece to hang in the street to increase his business? Teshu said, Will it improve the appearance of the street? Of course, they said. But he is not thinking of that, but purely of money, purely of money. The master said, Probably he does feel that a sign written by me will make money. And you are certainly thinking about money. But I am not thinking about money. He wrote it, and a Tokyo street became beautiful. Teshu once, in an emergency, borrowed a thousand yen from a moneylender. This was given on the word of a former samurai. But when the moneylender thought it over, he decided to ask for a formal acknowledgement of the debt. The master at once agreed and wrote on a large sheet of paper in his wonderful calligraphy. The classics say that each man has seven bad habits and one of mine is a reluctance to repay a debt. In view of this bad habit, by giving this acknowledgement for this loan, I now rule it out and make the repayment of the money a little more possible. He passed it over and when the moneylender saw it, he lost colour. Seeing which, the master clapped his hands and gave a great laugh. The moneylender had to take it and went slowly home. One of his acquaintances, however, happened to notice the paper. He looked at it carefully and then said, This is something quite out of the ordinary, both in its phrasing and the calligraphy. I will take it off you for a thousand yen if you like. The moneylender suddenly realised what he had and had it framed. When the time came for Teshu to return the money, and he told the other to collect it. The moneylender said, I make a gift of it in exchange for the master's writing, and would not take it. He kept Teshu's receipt as an heirloom.
Obstacles A man asked the abbot of a monastery outside a city whether he could come each weekend to meditate there, as at home in the city there were constant hindrances and the noise from the street interrupted his meditation. You may come, said the abbot, but there will still be interruptions. The man came the next weekend, and in the afternoon entered the great meditation hall all alone. The place was absolutely silent, and quite bare, except for a small image of the Bodhisattva of Wisdom at one end, with a single stick of incense burning in front of it. In the dim peace he felt his nerves relax, and sat down to try to enter his meditation. After a little, the place felt almost too silent. He thought he heard a tiny sound, and opened his eyes a little. He noticed the stick of incense, and began to wonder why the smoke always rises. Then he noticed the perfume of the incense, far superior to the incense in the temple near his home. He speculated how much it might cost, and thought, if it is not too expensive, then probably they get quite a reduction for buying in quantity, perhaps I could buy some from them here at cost price. They are, after all, spiritual men and not interested in profit. And then sell it to the priest at our temple and make a little for myself. The bell sounded, and he realized that his meditation hour was finished. He went straight to the abbot, prostrated himself, and said, I understand. The interruptions are from within. From now on, I shall practice meditation in my home. Please, give me your blessing. The abbot blessed him, and he returned. Karma The teacher in his sermon was explaining the doctrine of karma, which teaches that all voluntary actions produce an effect on the doer in this or future lives. If you want to know what you have done in the past, he said, look at your present circumstances, which are the result of what you did. If you want to know what your future will be, look at what you are doing now, which will shape it. In the Christian Bible, too, the same doctrine is hinted at in the words, As you sow, so shall you reap. Afterwards, one of the pupils said to the teacher, In the Christian Bible, there is a story of the man who was attacked and left for dead by robbers. Two people passed by on the other side of the road, and then a third man picked him up and looked after him. It must have been that man's karma to be rescued, so the ones who passed by did not do him any harm. Nor did the third man do him any good which he wouldn't have had anyway. It was his 
Karma to be rescued. That is right, replied the teacher. His karma was mixed, as it nearly always is. He had done some deeds of cruelty, which brought him the karma of being attacked himself. But he had also done some kindness, which saved him from dying. In that case, argued the pupil, there is no point in trying to do good to people. If it is their karma to receive good, they will have it anyway. And if it is not, nothing we can do will give it to them. The teacher made no reply, but later on, when they went for their afternoon walk, he called in at the house of a rich disciple and came out holding a silver coin. Just outside the town, he dropped this on the path and then seated himself with the pupil a little distance away. It is the karma of this coin to be picked up, he remarked. Let us see what happens. Two men came walking quickly towards the town. They were quarrelling furiously. Why did you have to answer him back like that? shouted one of them. Look at the trouble it will make for us. Why can't you keep calm? Tell yourself it takes two to make a fight. It only takes one, growled the other man, as you'll find out if you keep on about it. And they passed, glaring at each other and without noticing the coin. Soon afterwards came a man who was drunk. His bleary eyes could hardly make out the path, let alone the coin. He too passed by. The next man was walking calmly. He noticed the coin and looked around. Seeing the two, he asked, Have you dropped a silver coin, perhaps? The teacher got up with marked respect and bowed as he replied, It does not belong to us, sir. The other returned the bow and saying, Well, I will find a use for it, went on his way. That one will spend it wisely, remarked the teacher appreciatively. But you see the point about the karma. It was its karma to be picked up, and it was picked up. But unfortunate were those who missed the opportunity, and fortunate was the one who saw it and took it. It was the same with those three men near Jerusalem. It was the victim's karma to be picked up. But fortunate was the Samaritan who actually picked him up. He was the instrument through which the blessing came. And, as the voluntary instrument of blessing, he was blessed himself. Unsteadiness In her last work, Interior Castle, St. Teresa remarks that instability of spiritual states is often a cause of bewilderment to spiritual aspirants. They felt sure that what they experienced at times of devotion in favorable circumstances would be with them forever. When they found later that somehow it had gone, 
they were liable to lose confidence and give up. A Zen master discussing the same point compares the spiritual path to a journey in a rowing boat along a coast where there is a strong tide. Half the time it helps, and half the time the tide is against the boat. Beginners usually enter on the practice when things are favorable, and they make rapid progress up to a point. But when they find the tide has changed, many of them become discouraged because they find they can hardly advance any further, and they stop trying. So the contrary tide carries them back over nearly all the distance they covered. When it again runs for them, they make new efforts, and the spiritual qualities they had lost become manifest once more. But when it changes, they give up as before and are carried back, losing the spiritual intuitions and inner peace. They can spend, he adds, a lifetime thus alternating between elevation and depression, and never reaching the goal because they will not row unless the current is in their favor. Even worse, some of them may come to feel that all efforts are somehow useless, leading only to states most of which pass away. They lose faith that there is any real progress to be made. He gives some interesting and valuable advice to disciples in this situation. The attainments of the favorable times, he says, are indeed unstable, unless and until they have been held steady during an unfavorable time. When you row with the tide, you will pass certain points on the coastline. But if you stop rowing when the tide turns against you, you will be carried back past them. You will see them leaving you, so to speak. Then you will have to row past them yet again when the tide runs for you. But if, when you have once passed them, and the contrary tide begins, you work hard to hold the boat where it is, just where it is, without thinking of further progress at present, then those points are behind you forever. Never again will you have to struggle past them. If you attain a state of some peace in peaceful surroundings, you do not know whether that state will remain with you or not. But if you have managed, even once, to retain some degree of it during a time of serious disturbance, then that degree of peace is yours forever. And the same with other spiritual qualities. This is the advice of Zen Master Hakuin. The Nesting Instinct
It was an old country, hundreds of years behind the times, and a small group of young people in the capital began agitating for reform. They themselves lived on little and spent their time finding out the vested interests and centres of inertia that kept their country backward and exposing them in little duplicated leaflets. An important factor in their growing success was the examples they cited of other countries which had successfully reformed. Others began to join them. The Home Minister sent a private message to them. I am a supporter of your ideas, but cannot declare myself for you publicly. I can help you better by remaining at my post, but I can arrange for the transfer to you of a house with a considerable estate and several cottages. It is a bit outside the capital and rather tumble-down, but you could get it straight and then have a proper centre. Moreover, there is an old disused printing press in the basement, which you could repair and get going, and there are big stocks of old numbers of foreign magazines, which would help you with your propaganda. The price would be merely nominal. The group discussed it and joyfully agreed. They moved in and found that the place was indeed tumble-down and neglected. However, they worked hard to make a couple of cottages livable and to make the main house an administrative centre where they could also study the literature. Two of them began to learn the foreign languages in which it was mainly written. The printing press was a problem, but they gradually came to understand it and began to search for spare parts for this old model. In the capital, less was heard of their movement, but the cabinet came to know of their new centre and were worried what would happen when they got it organised. How did they get hold of such a place? The Home Minister reassured them. I arranged for them to have it. Are you mad? It will be a splendid centre for them. Previously they had nothing. Once they get it going... Don't worry, he said. They will never get it going. They have to work hard to keep up the place, and they're improving the gardens now. Some of them have taken jobs to get money to pay for the materials. Those two will take years to learn the foreign languages, and it will take a lifetime to get the printing press going, because spare parts for that old model are no longer made. They still mouth their slogans, but the means have become the end. They are marrying and settling in the rent-free cottages. The nesting instinct has taken over. New. 
A new disciple joined the group, who did not seem to have the usual set of virtues and vices. He somehow managed to be both arrogant and cringing, overblunt and hypocritical, lazy and yet fussy over trivialities, timid and then suddenly reckless. The head disciple remarked to the teacher, I don't know how we are going to make anything out of him. That evening, the teacher was taking his evening walk with the head disciple and two others, and the teacher prolonged the walk till late into the night. Finally, they returned by way of the house of a famous university professor, known for his aggressiveness and irascibility, and who was also a heavy drinker. He had just published a book on some intricate points in the philosophy of Chandrakirti. It was a hot summer evening, and they saw that the professor, as usual in the summer, had his bed on the veranda. He was asleep, breathing heavily but muttering in his dreams. Listen, said the teacher softly. What is he saying? They held their breath and listened, but it was only disjointed words and nonsensical phrases mixed up with the name Chandrakirti and some technical philosophical terms. Why, said the teacher to the head disciple, he is talking absolute nonsense. You could easily expose his errors. You were saying the other day that you doubted that he was always right. Then he called loudly, Professor, Professor, my disciple here wants to debate with you on Chandrakirti. The professor rolled over and sat up unsteadily, feeling for his slippers. Uh, what's that? I'll debate him. And he shouted for some coffee to the sleeping household but the disciple had fled. Next day, the teacher said to him, you didn't wait for the professor, though he was talking quite idiotically, because you knew that within him was the famous scholar, just overshadowed for the moment. You weren't simple-minded enough to think that those ravings of his were his real nature. What you said about the new disciple was too simple-minded. When he sits down to meditate, there is a God in full splendor meditating there. His problem is to realize it, and we shall help him to do that. It is not a question of making anything out of him. Looking up, 
A small, undeveloped country discovered some mineral resources, and the enlightened government decided on a policy of rapid change to universal literacy and education. An enterprising education minister sent a number of idealistic students to train abroad as teachers. When they returned, he dispatched them to small towns and villages. The main thing, he told them, is to show the country people that they can do it. Then we can bring out every scrap of the undiscovered ability in our people. In addition to getting the school going, I want you to develop gradually a highest class of promising boys and girls of seventeen. In five years' time, I shall come round and will arrange for two or three of the best from each school to be given free education at the university in the capital, plus a later stay abroad if they do well. In twenty years, we shall transform the country. As you perhaps know, there was opposition to sending you abroad. People said that we needed the able ones at home. You too will be criticized, but I want you to persist. Don't be diverted from what you are doing. His vision caught fire in them, and full of enthusiasm, they went out. After the five years, one such teacher duly received an official letter, saying that the minister was coming to inspect his school. It was accompanied by a personal note from the minister himself, saying, I hear you have been working hard, and I have been working too. Our plan will go ahead, and I look forward to seeing you and your school. When the minister arrived, they greeted each other warmly. The elder man looked over the school and said he was very satisfied. This bears out the reports I have had from the inspectors. Now show me your special class. I take it they are all keen to go? Oh, yes, said the teacher. It is the heart's desire of all the village youngsters. They went to a classroom, where there were about twenty boys and girls. The minister seated himself at the teacher's table on the little dais, introduced himself, and looked for a moment at each one. Then he said, You know that the government which I serve sometimes arranges for students like you to go to the university in the capital, and perhaps later abroad for a year or so. There is no competitive examination for these chances, though of course we do take your school record into account. Perhaps from one school half a dozen might be invited, and perhaps none. We have our own method of selection, but you all have a chance. Now, having said that, I want you each to imagine that you individually have been chosen. You can go and study anything you like. Afterwards, you may be able to go on to a foreign country, where there is specialized advanced training in your favorite subject. Now, write me a paper explaining what you would like to do 
and why. You have an hour to do it. As they bent their heads to begin, he said to the teacher, I want to see their exercise books on composition and also mathematics. The teacher got the books and held them in a pile, ready to pass them one by one to the minister. But the latter took two or three and opened them flat on the table. He seemed to be comparing them. Then he said shortly, just put them in a pile here on the side of the table. He took more and more off, laying them open side by side and pushing the pile to make room. Finally, he gave one push too many, and they all crashed to the floor. The teacher picked them up, but the minister now seemed to have lost interest. He sat on the edge of the table and began to tell a slightly scandalous story about a newspaper editor who had been castigating in his paper opium smoking and other offences, which he himself was committing in private. Somehow the hour passed, and the children handed in their essays and departed. The minister did not examine them carefully. He did not even look at them. The young schoolmaster was almost in tears as he realized that his patron, who he had respected and even revered, was becoming senile. As he looked sadly at the floor, the minister remarked briskly, it's those two, isn't it? The girl at the back with her hair done up in that big knot, and the boy in the second row at the right-hand end. Those are the two we want. What are their names? The teacher gaped. How did you know? Those are the best two, though there is another one who's very clever. The fat boy. Oh, no, not him, said the minister. When I pushed those books over, he looked up, just like all the others, except those two. And when I was telling that story, he had an occasional peep at me. Those two were the only ones who weren't diverted by me. The others, however clever they might be, when they got to the big city, and still more if they got abroad, would look up. And then their studies would go to pieces. Our country is at a parting of the ways, and we want students who will not look up. I asked them to write about their heart's desire. We want people who don't look up when it's a question of their heart's desire.
Encounters in Yoga and Zen, Meetings of Cloth and Stone, was written by Trevor Leggett. The readers were Gerard McDermott, Madeline Brolly, Judith Clark, and Jonathan Keeble. The music was composed and performed by Peter Anthony Monk. It was produced by Loftus Media for the Trevor Leggett Adhyatma Yoga Trust. Encounters in Yoga and Zen, Meetings of Cloth and Stone, was written by Trevor Leggett. The readers were Gerard McDermott, Madeline Brolly, Judith Clark, and Jonathan Keeble. The music was composed and performed by Peter Anthony Monk. It was produced by Loftus Media for the Trevor Leggett Adhyatma Yoga Trust. <laughs>